Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Loader Tarotki is over. My friends, you bow to no one. The eye of the enemy is moving. The end has come. Frodo moves closer to Mordor. How do we know Frodo is alive? What does your heart tell you? Come, Master! Come to Smeagol! This is your test. Every path you have trod through wilderness, through war led to this road. The enemy will never let Aragorn come to the throne of Gondor. It is time. Give him the sword of the king. Become who you were born to be. The precious sleepy eyes. He needs to murder us! I'm not sending him away. Come to me. 
set them. The pieces are moving. You see that? It's the Lord of the Rings Return of the King. This is it. This is the the finale of our three-part review of the epic franchise extended edition of the Lord of the Rings. We have made it. We've made it to the last film. It is the longest film comes in at, what does it come in? 423 something with probably 23 straight minutes of credits. I think that's about right. It's hefty, let's just say. Yeah. It's a hefty, hefty film. So this one picks up, the, especially the extended edition picks up with a fantastic uh, review of the history of Smeagol. And for that reason alone, I think this movie defines the purpose of doing extended editions. I I think this movie is great. That was all in there. Are you saying it wasn't? It wasn't? It was? I thought that was new. No, no, no. That was in there. That was in the theatrical version? It was. but The whole uh, history the, of Smeagol? The whole history of Smeagol. What they added in that scene in the extended edition is a little more of the murder of Deagle. Oh, good. Uh, that, That's what I mean. Was a little, More murdering. And that was actually That's of course not what I mean. That, that was not a a, uh, a choice edit. That wasn't something that Jackson, <laughs> from my understanding, that thing. he chose to do. But the censors were like, mm, "He's strangling a little too long. Can we thin <laughs> that out a little bit, or we'll have to give you an R rating?" Yeah. Well, I uh, I love it. I think it's fantastic, and I think this is a great way to get into this movie. Uh, how did it hit you? Uh, the four hour version this time around. They're always just such a delight to watch uh, and the story is just um you know just kind of fills you up there's just so much to it it's such a rich story it's just there there it's just so much going on there really is that it's um just kind of a uh, an exciting thing to step into again and really kind of go through the entire experience of of this entire story i mean i, I really enjoy kind of going through all the emotions that i feel with this it's just there's a lot of good stuff so it's a it's a favorite. You have a particular emotion you'd like to begin with? Well, I since you started with the Smeagol Deagle thing, I want to start there. Oh, great. Because um <laughs> one of the moments that I I it is a, a a minor quibble that I have and it's just a director's choice thing. It's not like they did something wrong, but there's something that always strikes me funny when 
I see Smeagol, who, as we know, becomes Gollum over the course of his time with the ring. He kind of, his body mutates and transmorphs into the Gollum creature for whatever reason. The fact that the voice is the same always strikes me funny. And I feel like it makes sense as the Gollum voice, but when I see Andy Serkis doing the voice as Smeagol, I always like, did he always really talk that way? Couldn't that have been something that also <laughs> changed with his look? Because I feel like I would have bought that a little bit. Like is that his voice box needed to get shriveled up and evil too? Exactly. Yes. Okay. So we needed a before voice box. Yeah. I just think All right. it just, it, it just, I mean, does it, is it something that's ever hit you not until just now not until just now i because i feel like the the affectation comes in the form of his swallowing disorder (laughs) Gollum, Gollum, uh that he that that that's the part that is uh that he struggles with as a result of this transformation i i guess i never i never made i never made the connection that his voice didn't change that's interesting yeah it's just it's just one of those things that yeah it's again, it's just a minor thing, it's, but it's something I always think about when I see him. I'm like, oh, yeah, we've got to hear him talk as Andy Circus as Gollum. <laughs> That's so, really funny. Oh, no. I did, I did <laughs> not think about it. He calls him my love. Do you think there is a, that's just an affectation of their friendship, or do you think at some point they're trying to indicate that Smeagol and Deagle are a unit? I don't think that was, uh, I can't imagine that would have been J.R.R. Tolkien's intention. I'm sure it wasn't Tolkien's intention. Yeah, I, I don't think, I think that's just his affectation. Okay. Uh, you know, I mean, I was just in Texas and every, like, I can't tell you how many times I was called sugar while I was there. It was just, oh, you know, Andy, that's, that's just what they, that's what mm-hmm. they say. I know. That's right, sugar. I felt a little oh. extra sweet. Oh, I love it. <laughs> hey, we, we started the last two um, talking about the extended editions and the extended scenes. Do you want to start there again with this one? And just well, kind of... I feel like I've I've already failed this because I thought <laughs> I've already thought that that something that was in the theatrical <laughs> was uh, actually uh, in there already. So yeah, I think we should start there. Get me up to speed. Okay. There, I mean, there was a lot of uh, like the last two. There are a lot of additions to scenes that have really kind of extended things out. But as far as the new scenes, I guess we'll just stick with those. Uh, the first one is perhaps one of the the bigger ones, and that, that is the voice of Saruman. And that uh, is this whole scene that had been shot and finished featuring Christopher Lee, where we have Gandalf, Aragorn, uh, basically kind of the whole group from uh, Helm's Deep, they now ride through um, through the the freshly replanted Fangorn Forest and head up to Isengard, where they meet up with Treebeard, uh, Merry, and Pippin, and uh, and they have this confrontation with Saruman. And this is this whole thing that they had shot. They put it in here, and then they decided, time wise, if we cut it, it will it'll still be fine. Because that was one of those things, like Christopher Lee was completely excised from this film for its theatrical release. And so right. here we are getting this again. I mean, how does this scene play for you? Do, do you like this, the, the way that we have this moment with Saruman here, and we get to see how Gandalf gets the Palantir, uh, etc.? Yeah, I, I actually really do. And I think it ties nicely to the later scene 
um, particularly around Pippin grabbing the Palantir later. Like, it's nice to see that he already had a connection with it here. First of all, I think the scene is actually well written. I like the use of language in this sequence when they talk back and forth to one another. And, you know, his fall. Uh, landing on the the sort of water wheel and and being dragged into the water uh, upside down is dramatic and I don't have an issue with it. I think it's a it's a great addition. I don't know that I necessarily missed it. It's not one of those scenes that I think dramatically makes this better, but I certainly don't think that there is any um, that there's a problem with it. I uh, really like having the scene back. I just I like that uh, Saruman is still working to uh, do what he can to you know, get into their heads. And it also gives a great moment to see how Gandalf has now kind of moved into the position of authority. And you really get that sense that he is now more powerful than Saruman. And the story that I always find most interesting about this scene is when Wormtongue stabs Saruman in the back. Um, the whole story with that is that because Christopher Lee had, you know, served in the war and, and he said he had seen people killed by getting stabbed in the back and so peter jackson when he was telling him um that he's going to stab you in the or you know he'll stab you in the back and you just need to go ah or something like that and christopher's like no 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 that's not how somebody who gets stabbed in the back sounds i know how it sounds and so (laughs) so it's grim chris grim uh, very grim very grim but that was Uh the story that kind of goes along with that um I found that to be um, a pretty interesting story, uh, yeah. which is another reason that I like it, just because it's it gives a little more, um, uh, you know, uh, gravitas to the moment. Yes. Yeah, I think so, too. I, I like the scene. I like the scene. I do think the scale is in some cases a little bit off, um, but but I like the idea that these wizards can talk to one another at normal voice and hear each other from the <laughs> great height. Yeah, uh, that uh, I, I think that is uh, really, really fun. <laughs> like, apparently, wizards can wizards can hear anyone and yeah, project. They, they're they're really any, good at projecting their wizards. voices. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they, yeah it's perfect. Um, yeah, I I actually I like it, and I like that it sets up here. I like the because the Pippin and Mary and Pippin eating sequence, their whole thing where they they're sitting back eating and drinking. Was that in the theatrical? Yeah, just just when everybody arrives and and yeah, and Gimli's all uh, upset that they're you know drinking and smoking, yeah. So that's yeah, that is um, all. I mean, this whole thing was. Um, I mean, they arrive. I think what we get is the they they arrive to the water, and the entire part with the tower is cut out. They just kind of go through the process of hey, we we're all reunited. Uh, Pippin finds the uh, Palantir in the water, and that's kind of the end of it. But they cut everything with the tower. So, all right. Next up, uh, I'm going to read through a few of these quick because uh, okay. they're, you know, uh, unless you want to specifically talk about them. But the decline of Gondor, the wizard's pupil, Peregrine of the Tower Guard, the Corsairs of Umbar, that's seeing bits of the boat, Mary's simple courage, the Tomb of the Stewards, the Witch King's Hour, the Houses of Healing, Aragorn's Masters, Aragorn Masters the Palantir, the Captain and the White Lady in the Company of Orcs, the Mouth of Sauron. Uh, the Mouth of Sauron is probably the other 
big one that people talk about here. I mean, I know like the Witch King's Hour, that's when the Witch King comes and lands on the castle and confronts Gandalf. And that's how Gandalf's staff disappears. Like we see him riding off with his staff to go save uh, Faramir from Denethor's fire. And once he gets there, he doesn't have it anymore. He doesn't have a staff. In the theatrical version. <laughs> and so that's it. We get to see how they lost that. But um, the other big one that I suppose has caused some controversy I, I, I guess, is the mouth of Sauron. And that's really just because I think some people were like, nah, I don't know if I like how that looks. But I love how that character looks. And I, I love the, the way that it plays and the way that, just like Saruman, it's this mouth character, but it's always listening for any clue that it can have that what it's saying is getting to somebody. And so when it shows uh, the, the mithril coat and it gets that clue that Perry and, or Mary and Pippin are, you know, they realize Frodo's gone, it uses that against them. I, I really enjoy the way that that whole scene plays. I actually don't have a problem with the mouth of Sauron either. I, I think it's uh, I think it's just fine. I, I really I mean, there's nothing. In fact, in the entire list of things that you you brought up here, I don't have a problem with any of them. I do wonder because and I'll, I'll bring up again because I feel like there was some contra- controversy around how Faramir is handled in this movie. And I'm curious if you have a good reason for me to hate Faramir in this movie. As of right now, I don't. I don't have any reason to hate him either. I don't, I, I, I think it's fine what they did. They came up with a way to just integrate him a little bit more once he's saved, uh, by Gandalf and, and Pippin. He ends up in like a house of healing and that's where he ends up, you know, next to Eowyn, who's also in the house of healing after having defeated the, the, uh, witch king. Yeah. And so then we kind of have their little romance, which is one of those things that, I think they largely wanted to put in because, uh, again, just trying to give these characters a little more. They didn't want to just drop Faramir off off the map after he was saved. They didn't want to drop Eowyn off the map after she had defeated the Witch King. It's like those sorts of things. What can we do with those characters to just kind of give them a little more? And I suppose a resolution to the love triangle that we had had. I don't, I don't, it doesn't bug me. I, I kind of enjoy that resolution. I guess it's fine. I guess if so, the the handling of uh, I think if there's anything that I need more of, it's the love triangle. The fact that she comes up to Faramir and they get they get connected. When I I feel like she, her her part of the love love triangle is flimsy. She's a flibberty gibbet. She's all over the place. It feels like to me. Like that is that's pretty thin. But he looks at her with such loving eyes, Pete. They are so loving. I'm in love with them at the end of it. For crying out loud, the the problem that I I have, I, if I had a problem, it would probably be around how the 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 steward himself like being so obtuse uh the entire time like i i feel like his he he was instructed to portray this as if he was in if he was like had like couldn't hear anyone else around him he feels like he's in a different movie he's just mad at everything and so mad that he's gonna like it's he's okay you know, killing his own son and being ignorant of all those who are saying anything to him. And I feel like that is such an obtuse character just to get to the point where he dramatically is lit on fire and, and throws himself off of the um, off of the wall. I, I, it's not that I hate that part. It's that I recognize how dumb he is as a character. And I feel like he was written that way intentionally. And so I give it enough grace. He is an ugly character. And maybe we just need him to be an ugly character. 
I don't like him, and I think I meant not to like him and like what he represents, but it, it's hard to watch. It's hard to watch because I'm on that line. It, and it does, I think, to some extent, take me out of the movie. You? I, I don't have any issues with it. And I think a lot of it is because he comes very much from the book that way. And actually, in the book, I, I think uh, Tolkien makes it somewhat clear that he that he knows Faramir is not dead. And uh, I think, if anything, the book or the the film gives a little more of a sense where he actually is kind of in a, a mental state where he doesn't quite realize it. Yeah. But what's happened is, you, I mean, I, I think it's important to just remember that he has been using the Palantir. And so he has been kind of taken in many ways You're by right. Sauron yeah. and That's has like this great fear of Sauron coming. And now Aragorn is showing himself. And I think uh, the way that he is portrayed in the story is that this is a person who's uh, who really i mean i i kind of look at it almost which is a weird way but like mercury poisoning like you look at like the madness of king george or something like that it's like this is the madness of sauron who has gotten into his head and completely repainted how everything how he sees absolutely everything and when he has that moment where everything is is coming down he's just like hell i screwed it all up well i guess i'm just gonna you know we're gonna burn us all and it's all gonna be over yeah and i think that's that's really how i view that is that he's at this point where he's just completely feels like he's failed and he's just gonna tear it all down now you know it's an it's an interesting way to look at it i think a gracious way to look at it i i think the I, I think my challenge is what I want out of that character and what I think we got more of out of the book was that he was on parallel with Theoden. Like it was Theoden and Gandalf and Aragorn and Denethor, the steward of Gondor. And here we are. These these people need to play off of one another. And of those four, he is given the least to do. All we get is his crazy. And that is the part I think that I end up missing, that it's it's just the crazy absent the meat and substance that, that we could have gotten. And part of that, I think, is because we get to him so late in his story. Like, we haven't gotten to see too much of, uh, apart from stuff that was added in the extended edition in the last movie, which wasn't a lot. We, we haven't gotten to see a lot of who he is and what he represents. And so I think the argument is, do we have enough in the movie, in the extended edition? Does it add enough to, to kind of make the movie? I think when I'm watching the movie, this is the only part of this movie where I stop and I think this character isn't enough. All we're getting is one dimensionality. And, and I think there could be more. It just feels a little bit empty. I, I don't know if I'd say it's one dimensional. I think there's a lot of, uh, a, a lot of different emotions that he's, uh, portraying here and I, I i find it to be interesting i i get that this is one of those characters that is uh contentious a little bit as far as how people view, view view it but i think there's a lot of pride that he has in in the fact that he wants to show that he can actually uh, work as the steward and is doing a good job also the sense of failure that he has like i feel like there's a lot of really interesting things and you have scenes like when he asks pippin to sing that song for him as he's eating and just like i don't know i just feel like we're we're watching this character like go through this breakdown and i don't know i i feel like there's it's subtle but i do think that there's really interesting kind of uh this dark dark journey that uh that he goes on uh descending into further madness well and i will add to since you brought up the song that pippin uh billy boyd's got pipes he sounds great i love that song i want him to sing me to sleep oh yeah here he does that did one of the songs in the um 
was it the the third of the Hobbit films he sings the songs and yeah I mean he's yeah he's great yeah. so so that's pretty much the rundown of the extended uh, scenes that gives us a sense as to you know what they added to really flesh this out and again of course a mile and a half of um, names of the fan club at the end yes. of the credits so that really fleshes things out so in in terms of the the other I think big character that we've we've already talked about him in the opening when he's actually uh we get to see him live action uh we're talking about uh, andy circus's Gollum. that is another character that has evolved yet again from the last movie to this one in terms of character portrayal and cg and all of that what, what's your take on the evolution of Gollum? i mean we had really seen the big turn for Gollum in the last film, right? That was the the second film is really the the journey that we have of the two halves of Gollum battling with one another, trying to I mean, I guess you could say the Smeagol side of Gollum trying to come or eventually coming out and befriending uh, Frodo and wanting to help. And then by the time we get to the end of that film, uh, feeling betrayed and the Gollum side has now taken over and uh, it is full on dark and evil and twisted and kind of gone back to where it had been uh, when he when he first showed up in this film in this franchise and so this film largely is the dark golem it's really like I, i guess it's not as much a journey for this particular character like you know he has now decided he's going to work to do everything he can to make sam look like uh, Sam is the problem, so that Frodo and Sam kind of create that rift between the two of them and get Frodo trapped and, and caught by the spider and uh, make off with the ring. And of course, things don't necessarily go completely the way he wants, but, and of course, we, it builds to the end, which is uh, fantastic. I do, <laughs> I do always wonder, of course, it's just the nature of the story in the first place. Like, how does Gollum go from wherever he fell all the way to the volcano? Like, was he, still tracking them in some capacity i'd love to kind of get the the um one shot version of Gollum's yeah, story the gps <laughs> coordinates at a minimum <laughs> cuz i mean he also would have to navigate across mordor past all of the armies and everything yeah right but he's very sneaky he is very sneaky mm-hmm. yeah yeah i i think that uh you know andy circus does a great job and i think it just continues as a, a a fantastic character and an introduction to this exciting uh, technology um, evolved with motion capture. Yeah, and and I think in in terms of of placement of Gollum in scene, I think it is uh, it, it's a triumph. Like I think his he he I, I can get completely lost in the portrayal of this character in this movie along with the Hobbits. And I think if you take out all of the battle at uh, 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 Minas Tirith. And just show me, in this case, the Hobbit's journey to Mordor and to the volcano and to the very bitter end. I'm in it all the way. Like, I think it's really, really great. And and this is coming from the last movie where I felt like some of this stuff was a little bit of a slog. Here, I love it. I love the Shelob stuff. I love everything about that. And part of that is also because the animated version, I think this was the Bakshi one, where they actually have the tower sequence after, you know, Shelob has... has you know, incapacitated Frodo. I have a really visceral memory of that, so I'm I get so excited every time I come to that sequence in this movie. I just love it. The orc fight, everything is is great. It's also, I think, because this movie 
makes it such a character piece, the CG, that I'm able to get lost in a lot of the humanity of their interactions in this movie. And then we get to Minas Tirith, and it is such a... Like, it's taking Helm's Deep and leveling it up with elephants that I I I feel a little bit like, okay, I'm in a parade now, and it's going to be awesome. I can accept it for what it is. But it's a parade of digital bits in a way that was that the last movie, even with all of the digital duplication of orcs, was not. Does that make any sense? Like, it it just feels, it feels great. I love it. It's a great action scene. But it, this movie feels like, like, everything I loved about Lord of the Ring, or about Fellowship of the Ring, uh, with a massive adrenal shot that, that might, I, I don't know if that's in in great service of it. It doesn't feel as grounded when we get to the to the biggest pieces. And I know that I mean Viggo Mortensen has come out and said similar stuff. And um, you know, I just read. I think it, Brian had shared with me the the thread uh, on Reddit that sort of pulls apart Viggo Mortensen's quotes. And so I was reading it before we got into this thing. And I think he's you know he's talking about it in terms of what. CG allows directors to do, and then when they get so excited, they get sort of high on their own supply. And and I feel like the difference between Fellowship of the Ring and Return of the King, and then incredibly so, the Hobbit, uh, you know, trilogy exemplifies that. So I'm curious if you have any any sort of second thoughts on this viewing about you know the biggest visual sequences. There are a few ways to approach that, I suppose. And the first is when you're looking at a story and uh, you know conceiving this as one single story, as things build over the course of your story, by the time you're getting to the end, things will be the biggest. And I mean, that's just kind of the nature of stories, right? So by the time we get to this particular part of this trilogy, yes, things are going to be bigger. These armies are going to be huge and we're going to have so many more things. I mean, it's not just, uh, it's not just orcs and Urukai and humans and, and elves and, and trolls and dwarves, but then we have the Oliphants running around in there. We have all this whole army of the dead. We have all the people coming up in the boats before the army of the dead. Like, there are so many things um, happening that uh, really... It, it brings a lot to the scope of this battle. And yeah, when you're watching a movie like this, that's what you want. You want it to build to this place where we're getting the, the biggest fights at the end. And so I, and I mean, it, it is very much how the book is written. It's not like right. Jackson decided to move things around or change things specifically. Like this is pretty much how the book goes. Like by the time we get to the end on the fields of Pelennor, that's kind of what we're looking at here where we have all of this stuff actually happening there. And we have Gimli and Legolas running around counting how many people they've killed and stuff. And so it's all there. The scope of this film, I really have no issues with. In fact, to a certain extent, I appreciate more what Jackson is doing here than I did with like the wire rig through the forest shot that we have at the end of Fellowship of the Ring, which always feels a little funky to me. And it seems a little weirdly mechanical. This, the way that the CG battle is happening, I mean, there are shots that I'm like, okay, did I need to see Legolas like hop, like jump up and, and like the way that he swings up the, the Oliphant along his arrows that he's penetrated its skin with all the way up to its head, killing the people 
and then bringing the elephant down and then sliding down and like surfing off of its trunk as it dies right behind him. Which is really great that you bring that up because that's case example number one of excessive that, like, well, use of yeah, this stuff. Absolutely. But yeah. I think to a certain extent, you get to a point where this series, you know, we're again, considering this is kind of one big film, we're getting to this point where the, where we've had all of these builds and everything. And this is a that was a great moment to give us some cool Legolas moves. And we can see him as an elf doing some really cool stuff. And then, of course, it pays off with the joke between him and Gimli, where Gimli is still that still only counts as one. And, you know, I it's I, I appreciate what they're doing there. And I don't mind uh, really any of what's going on through the end of this. In fact, I think in the scope of what Jackson is doing, I think this is the best example that he's had of giving us a, a big CG battle where we have lots of things going on. And I think he's managing it very well. I, I do think, to your point, once we get past this and into the Hobbit films, I think when we, especially when we get to that big battle at the end, Battle of Five Armies, that's one where there is a lot of stuff happening where it's like, okay, we're maybe we're, we're creating maybe too many um, sequences just to have a, a big action beat. I, I, I don't have any issue with any of it going on in this film. It's easy to let the impression of what's going on at the end of this movie be colored by what we know it comes after. And it's not just the Hobbit <laughs> right, examples of, of the Hobbit for, you know, action beats for action beats sake, but also like, let's do it and push forward for theatrical, you know, 48 frames per second. And let's push every every lever to 11 to at the at the expense of story. And I think to your point, if your objective as a filmmaker is to do the highest fidelity adaptation of a property you love in term in the form of the Lord of the Rings book, and you have these tools with which to do it, you use the tools, right? The Oliphant and the Army of the Dead, like, I think the Army of the Dead stuff works terrifically. And arguably, some of that technology has been around for decades and decades and decades, like being able to do that sort of compositing. Here, he did it very, very well. I think it's lovely. Um, all of that stuff adds to big dramatic moments. I think some of the comedy, like you bring up the Legolas swinging around in the Oliphant, and some of that is, it just doesn't work. On the other hand, with the Oliphants and their, their great big barbed, you know, chains across their tusks, sweeping across the battlefield, is extraordinarily cool and vicious and violent, and it's, it's what I would expect in a battle scene like this. So I'm, I guess I'm of two minds on it. Um, I, I think that the way the battle is executed is great, and I also think this is like, you know, step, step three in Jackson's long march toward potentially, you know, again, getting high on his own supply. Yeah, I, I mean, it, and I, I guess it's just it, it is one of those things. It really does boil down to like how, you know, you know, are you buying into it? You know, yeah. but I mean, yeah, to that end, I think it's easy to see the line from action sequences like this that he's doing here to something like Avengers Endgame, where you have a huge action sequence with hundreds of people all doing different tasks and kind of working across a giant field in which they're all working. And, and I think that's an interesting element that you can really see how uh, the sort of epic storytelling in those final confrontations has has really kind of grown. And I mean, we could go back in time also, but I think once you start really building the CG versions of it, this seems to be probably where it kind of kicks off as far as what 
you know, Jackson showed to modern action epic fantasy filmmakers what you could do in these big battle sequences. I mean, even James Cameron in the Avatar films. Yeah, right. It's it's I, I think just the nature of the beast. And to that end, it's going to boil down to how the director is doing it, how they've crafted the sequences to play and um, and really kind of a lot of what their, um, you know, their second unit teams are doing to kind of fill in all the all the details. Well, and I think it's important to recognize that to, to me also, it's the biggest moments in this movie, the dizzying, sweeping, giant moments in this movie that actually make the smallest moments that much better, right? The quiet moments, the my friends, you bow to no one moments that are just a character looking at other characters and and having an actual performative moment. And I, I think those are so lovely in this movie. They They are absolutely outshine. And and come as the summation of everything that we've seen before in the last, you know, 11 hours of the movie, the last hour makes good in this movie. I think it's really, really terrific. And and so much of that comes because of the balance of, of the big stuff. And that's what the greatest movies do. Well, now that you bring that up, I'm curious uh, where you stand on the, the whole issue where people complain that this film has too many endings. Yeah, I don't. I feel like it has too many endings to me. Not at all, because I think every single thread needs an ending, right? Like, we have a lot of characters. Everything has to end. So let's, in all fairness, end them. And I, I think it's, I actually think it works very well for me. Do you? I My assumption is you're on team It's Okay. Oh, I'm, I'm 100% on team It's Okay. Like, I love every bit of this. I would have made it longer if I could have. <laughs> like, I just, I love having, I love being in this world. And I think Jackson did yeah. such an exceptional job of crafting the story. And I don't have those issues. I think some people, I think the argument for some people isn't necessarily that, it, it, you know, there are too many endings, but that they feel like the way that Jackson directed it and edited it, it feels like, oh, it's ending. Oh, oh, it's not ending. Oh, okay. Oh, oh, oh wait. Okay. This is the ending. Oh, oh, wait, no, no, it's not the ending. There's more still. I'm going to say, controversial thing. Like, until I read this complaint preparing for this show, I've never felt that or heard it from anybody. And now it's everywhere. Of course, it's everywhere. It's, it's been everywhere, Pete. Yeah. Been, yeah. It didn't just start in 2023. But I've Suddenly, never, people I, like, are like... <laughs> <laughs> too many endings. I've just... It, it has been so far from my con- concept of this movie because I love the way every story gets an ending. I don't love all the endings, but I love the way every story gets an ending. Yeah. Spoiler, I have one that I don't like. Uh-oh. I know. Okay. Did you want to say what it is, or do you just want to not tell people? I don't love it that Frodo gets on the boat. I don't feel like that's earned, and I've never felt like that's earned, like, in the story. What do you mean it's not earned? Because Bilbo went on a very similar journey and got real old because he took the ring off, but he gets to go get on the boat. He gets to go be on the boat. Bilbo's earned being on the boat. He had a whole full life. I don't believe Frodo had a whole full life. He had an adventure that lasted 13 months. That was not, I mean, okay, you carried the ring. You put it in the volcano. You're fine now. You look fine. Go have a life. Farm some turnips. Hang out with <laughs> Sam. I'm, I wasn't done with Frodo. Do you, do you feel that way in the book, too? Yeah. I've always felt that way. Huh, okay, okay. I think that's dumb. I that's a Tolkien challenge that I have, and I don't like it. And I think I think on film it's made worse for me because 
Elijah Woods t- still looks great. He looks like he's ready to get up and start doing some hoeing and farming and reaping. He, he can do that in the Grey Havens. It's not like they go and fall off the edge of the, the, the planet and die. We don't know what the Grey Havens are. What are the Grey Havens? Tell me what the Grey Havens are. I think they're dead. That's like they go no, and they, they, they become spirit people. No, That's no, a new no. transformation. They just go live in a different place. I love it. <laughs> I love it. And I mean, I, I always felt that it worked incredibly well. I mean, sure, Bilbo carried the ring for a very long time. But let's be honest. Sauron wasn't after it. It was just kind of in his pocket. He's like, I'm going to be invisible now. I'm going to not be invisible now. And he never, ever had to deal with the confrontation of the giant I am Sauron or go through the emotional turmoil that poor Frodo had to deal with. His life was pretty okay. And so I think that it's all right. He had uh, a dragon. There was a dragon. His Sauron was the dragon. There's a there's a difference with the the mental anguish of uh, <laughs> of dealing with Sauron through the ring. Uh, all right, anyway, all right, that's fair. What do you What do you think about? Uh, you know, we talked a little bit about the the treatment of women um, in the in the films up to this point, and especially in the last film where it really felt more of Tolkien's era as far as writing the book, the way that kind of women were meant to stay behind and, and to take care of things and the men would go off and fight. But then we have Eowyn in this film who disguises herself as as a man along with Mary and they go and join the fight and she ends up killing the Witch King with her very convenient line, I am no man, as she drives the sword into his face. Um, I, I mean, it's it plays so incredibly well. I love the way that it uh, works. As a moment, and just in the scope of what we're getting and what Jackson, Walsh, and Boyens really tried to do with the script to kind of give more to the female characters in a story that really doesn't do much for female characters. I mean, how do you feel that it ends up playing um, in this film? Well, first of all, the only thing that I think of when she says, I am no man, is that there's the sword hanging out of the Witch King's face, and the Witch King actually says, okay, all right, I know, we weren't specific enough. I meant no human, no human. Just get that thing out of my face. Like, I have this entire scene that, that plays out <laughs> where he You've tries to correct. You've thought about this quite a bit. I've thought about this before because <laughs> I, I don't I don't love that. That 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 feels cheap. That feels like a cheap, a cheap twist today. Maybe it would have felt different when I first saw it. I don't know. It just feels like sort of low hanging fruit writing to me. It, it is a it's a good line and a dramatic beat. But in terms of the arc of feminism in this movie, it's it's a small, small contribution to the coffers. Um, I do think what they were trying to do here, they succeed with doing in an adaptation that is not kind to female characters, right? I mean, this is the the book was not kind overall to female characters, as in there weren't very many of them. And so I think they did fine here. I think we have, uh, what's her name? Liv Tyler. It has uh, not much representation in this, in this film. And, Eowyn is a, a flipper to gibbet of, of romance and battle. And she, I like her. I like <laughs> her well enough. She's kind of all over the place. Um, the best part of her angle is that she is, she puts on the helmet and then grabs Mary and they go off to battle together. And I like that this is a whole horse full of those who are underrepresented in some way, underappreciated in some way. And I think that is a really awesome contribution but the film can only do so much 
to that end, I think they're doing the best that they can with the story that they're working with. And so to that end, yeah. I, I, I quite like it. And I, I think that that moment with Eowyn, actually, I really enjoy it. It always hits me. The no and, man. I am no man. Yeah. I, it, I mean, just, <laughs> just the way that the whole scene is constructed with her delivery and everything. Yeah. And then the way that that flipping thing like implodes i just think is so cool like it's, I, it's like cool all effect. of that is yeah the whole thing is such a great moment so i love yes. it yes so all right so that's but what about the cave trolls pete <laughs> andy i've been waiting i am surprised that we got a you know 40 minutes into this conversation for you to actually bring up use of troll use and abuse of trolls in this movie and all offense Let's just say, yeah, um, which, you know, we haven't really had the abuse of all fans until this film, but the cave trolls. Yeah, I mean, Gandalf even has a point <laughs> where he's going to write it down because I was laughing so much where he screams out, <laughs> aim for the trolls, kill the trolls. <laughs> I was like, oh, Gandalf, even you. And <laughs> to Gandalf. <laughs> That's right. Oh, those poor cave trolls. They didn't want to be there. But I think you watch those Oliphants. I think the Oliphants wanted to be there. I think they were willing participants in the battle. I think that uh, they were having some serious fun, (laughs) just (laughs) crushing everybody. (laughs) I love the Oliphants in this. They're just fantastically uh, created. I love how it's like an elephant blended in with kind of like this mastodon type of creature. Like they really decide (laughs) to go insanely large. So good. (laughs) So good. So good. Yeah. Um, we've talked a little bit about uh, Jacksonisms in kind of the past uh, couple episodes. Is there anything in this one that really stands out as like that really felt like a Peter Jackson flourish in the way that he was kind of crafting things? Well, I'm just wondering if this isn't a greatest hits of all Jacksonisms, right? Like, I feel like <laughs> I feel like so much of this movie is is that like how many times do we get the hard cut to a close-up on a character's face in shock flashback to violence having just passed in movies past like it just feels like those pushes into crystal clear eyeballs are are extraordinary uses of jackson camera and um yeah with wide angle lenses with wide angle lenses. like i think that he really loves those real close-ups with wide angle lenses that really kind of gives a little bit of that distortion and everything Absolutely, and this movie is John always Fuller, kind of so. kind of slightly Dutch too. So I, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's funny though. I I really do need to go back and rewatch some of his his non Middle Earth films because I I'm just so curious, like how much of that is him versus how much of that he really wanted to just specifically imbue in these stories. So yeah, yeah. like and and even especially the movies after because I want to know how much is habit, like Lovely Bones, right? Let's let's go back and look at Lovely Bones and see how much is is uh, is Jackson habit with camera versus because it's been a long time since I've seen that Which, and I've never seen that one so um, I mean honestly it's only <laughs> the only two options we really have are King Kong and the lovely bones because yeah um, he hasn't done those are the only two films he did but uh, and those are both between the Lord of the Rings trilogy the Hobbit trilogy and then since then it's just been documentary so um, yeah it's it's interesting how uh, his career has shifted so much. That was interesting. That World War One uh, documentary. He took all the footage and made it, you know, normal. And he also made it all Dutch angles. All the soldiers' cameras are now Dutch angles. <laughs> that was his contribution to the war effort. Oh my <laughs> Dramatic God. angles. Do you have any particular moments in this film that are like, oh, that is that is one of my highlights for this particular film? 
the Shelob bit, I have to come back to the Shelob bit because, and again, so much of it is, is the, uh, is the chase and the fight and Sam's rescue. And speaking of the, the close up to Frodo's on, on Wood's face as he is pierced by Shelob Ooh, and the yeah. white comes out of his mouth so slowly. It is like a perfect combination of dramatic and extensive uh, CG effects and great performance and horror. Like I think all of the, all of the character work is fantastic. I think Sam's rescue is fantastic. Uh, Like that whole sequence is great. Following up on that with my favorite sequence in the movie, which is Sam's climbing the tower and uh, you know, the orcs fighting themselves, that orc instant animosity, which, which I guess is a follow up a little bit to the last movie where we were we were talking a little bit about the Urukai orc uh, issues. Um, I don't know that that was really made clear that this m- might have been based on orc Urukai animosity in the tower that sort of spurred it. That it was it was maybe more greed, but that seemed to be the two two who were pissed at each other. Yeah, that who started it, right? It just yeah. made it easier to fight, but. Yeah. Um, so I I think that was uh, that is definitely uh, a highlight for me above the entire Minas Tirith battle sequence like that that sequence going from the dark passageway Shelob to climbing the tower I don't I, I'm I'm here for all of that a hundred percent What about you I mean absolutely that um, I, and it's interesting just following up on our conversation from the last film. Knowing how long it actually even takes in this film to get to the C- Shelob sequence, it's like, how could that? Yeah. Like, once you've seen this film, you're like, that would never have fit in at the end of the two towers. Like, that would have been another hour long film. They just couldn't have done it time wise. But I'm trying to look at because by the time they they dress in the orc outfit and join and and kind of get down and get pulled into the ranks. So this is Shelob, the tower climb, the they collect their clothes and they are now back. Two up. Towers ends where where Sam realizes that Frodo's alive. And and so Frodo's been taken off to the tower and that's kind of the end of their story in the Two Towers. Right, right. And I was just talking about the movie. Like at that point, there is still an hour and 18 minutes of movie left. And my memory of it is consistently, even right after I've seen it, that the Lord of the Rings picks up right at the beginning of that sequence. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> it, there's this. It, there's so much movie in this movie. Yeah, it's a, it's a big one. So some of my favorite sequences. One is the lighting of the beacons, which just always um, excites me. In fact, in such a way where I had to go back because I'm like, I don't even remember that in the book. <laughs> I had to go mm-hmm. reread it and it's go, oh, it's like this. It's like this one paragraph. and But it's something that I never, I guess when I read it, I never quite visualized it the way that they ended up doing it in the book i was just like oh okay they just light something to let them know like i don't think i contextualized what that really entailed and so the way that they portray that in the book just gets uh, really excites me plus with howard shore's music i mean howard shore's music yeah just add that to every single thing i say about this movie plus howard shore's yeah. music yeah. um so that and, and then I, but i think um one of my all-time favorite moments uh is though when they're on the the um the walk up mount doom and frodo can't walk anymore and then sam has to pick uh, frodo up and carry him up and i oh, can't carry it every time. but i can't carry you oh, oh andy i so uh, also would like to have just back to your beacons point i'd like to have beacons that we could light between us just between <laughs> portland 
Portland and Phoenix. What do you think that would take? <laughs> how far do you think they went across the mountains? Right? That's a good that question. Probably... How far? How far is, uh, <laughs> is Minas Tirith from uh, from Rohan? Rohan, yeah, yeah. I, I would like to. I would like to see what we could do about that. I don't know that it's strictly uh, legal to just have massive <laughs> pyres. I feel like there's across, a lot of across Utah, there's a Nevada. Lot of... <laughs> <laughs> a lot of dry areas between here and there that, yeah, they probably aren't going to want large open fires. <laughs> yeah, I, I think actually the beacon is called Oregon in summer. <laughs> it's not great. That's a terrible joke. I regret saying it already. Oh, my God. Uh, so funny. Okay. Yeah, it's really pretty bad. I uh, One last little thing I wanted to ask you about. Sure. What do you think? Of, we haven't talked about the songs really at all in these films. What do you think of the three songs that we end up getting to close the films? I don't have a strong opinion of the song. I can't even place the songs to close these films. In fact, the only song that I can place from any of these properties at the end of the show is actually from the end of one of the Hobbit movies. I think it might be Desolation of Smog. It's the Ed Sheeran song, Icy Fire, because that that was a that was a real chart topper. But I can't, I don't even remember the songs in these movies. What are the songs? Well, we have "Let It Be" by Enya at the end of uh, of uh, Fellowship. Oh, yep, yeah, I know so that that's song. the first one. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second, uh, the Two Towers is the one that I always forget. It's the one that doesn't stick with me nearly as well. And that one is called "Gollum Song," performed by Emiliana Torini. Okay, uh, which is definitely a darker song. And then, of course, we have Annie Lennox uh, into the West with this one. Yeah, I'm listening to that right now. Yeah, it, they're they're lovely. I don't have a strong opinion of them. The Annie Lennox into the West song just gets me. I mean, that, that song it? is like the perfect way to end this uh, this franchise. Like the song, just I I feel like it it takes you into the Grey Havens. Like I just I I think that it's a great way to end the end the story. And the Grey Havens are just to confirm to the West, right? Yes, into the West. You're not dying, you're not going off a cliff. It'd be funny if they were to the slight south-southeast. <laughs> but it's the only song we had the rights to. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I think that's about it. Any last thoughts from you? Yeah. I love I, I, I love this movie. Um, I, I love this movie and, uh, I have a great time with it and I feel like all of my complaints and quibbles should really be be reserved for the Lord of the Rings Return of the King extended edition by minute podcast, because all of that stuff would be worth litigating there for our purposes. It's great. All right. Well, we'll be right back. But first our credits. The next reel is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Tillman Celescu, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Okay, sequels and remakes. Have they? Has anybody decided to remake this yet? Uh, not yet, but uh, you know, I mean, you never know. You never know. One day, maybe someone will. Um, obviously, we had the Hobbit trilogy made from 2012 to 2014 by Peter Jackson. That whole trilogy, which originally was one film and then two films, and then it ended up being three films. And uh, you know, we've talked about most of that on the the film board. 
So you can listen to those episodes if you want to hear people having conversations about those films. There actually is in the works uh, for next year, 2024, a standalone animated prequel film to this called The War of the Rohirrim to be directed by Kenji Kamayama. Uh, Miranda Otto is at this point the only person who is reprising her role, and that is as the narrator. I think that sounds interesting. I'm curious uh, as to what that's going to be about. Um, kind of a you know feature animated story set 183 years before the events of The Two Towers. Tells the story of Helm Hammerhand, the legendary king of Rohan who must defend against an army of Dunlendings. He becomes the namesake for the stronghold of Helm's Deep. Who has that? Is that another Amazon production? It is New Line Cinema Warner Brothers Animation. Warner Brothers Pictures is going to be distributing that next April. That's fascinating. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Brian Cox is playing Helm Hander. Helm Ham- God, these names. Helm Hammerhand. <laughs> I tell you. Uh, so anyway, so those and then on top of that, of course, so many video games uh, to play. And of course, the Amazon TV show, The Rings of Power, which has had plenty of controversy. Um, we'll see what ends up happening with that. A lot of um, arguments about how they've been spending their money and uh, what they've been delivering. So we'll see what ends up happening if they can get that finished. I believe they've confirmed an, another season. Oh, yeah, I believe they have. I, I mean, I definitely enjoyed it. I, it's Me just too. one of those things that I'm, I'm quite surprised that it's uh, caused such uh, controversy. Yeah, yeah. More than anything else, I think that's the question. Well, unfortunately, a lot of the controversy is like, oh, dwarves are all, you know, all these characters should be white. And that's a lot of the arguments, and you know, a lot of those people out there. Yeah. How to do an award season. This was finally it, right? Oh, my goodness. This was very popular. 213 wins with 124 other nominations. Wow. And uh, yeah, so very, very good job. It, It was nominated for 11 Oscars, and it won them all. It won all 11 of them. Um, in fact, that makes it tie with Titanic and Ben-Hur for the highest number of Academy Award wins. They both also won 11. But it also now holds the record for the highest clean sweep at the Oscars, winning everything that it was nominated for. It won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Film Editing, Best Art Direction, Set Decoration, Best Costume Design, Best Makeup, Best Original Score, Best Original Song, Best Sound Mixing, and Best Visual Effects. So, yeah, very popular at the Oscars. Yeah, very popular. Again, I think a lot of it was people not giving as many awards to the previous two films because they were like, I'll just save my votes for the third one, which, you know, I think is kind of lame. But what are you going to do? Lame, but at least they finally ended up with something. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. At the Saturn Awards, it had 13 nominations. It won for Best Fantasy Film, Best Director. Elijah Wood won for Best Actor. Sean Astin won for Best Supporting Actor. It also won Best Writing, Best Makeup, Best Music, and Best Special Effects. Viggo Mortensen was nominated for Best Actor, but lost to Elijah Wood. And both Ian McKellen and Andy Serkis were nominated for Supporting Actor, but lost to Sean Astin. Uh, Best Costumes was uh, nominated but lost to Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. And Miranda Otto was nominated for Best Supporting Actress but lost to Ellen DeGeneres in Finding Nemo. <laughs> okay. Last but not least, over at the Guinness Book of World Records, we've been talking about this with this. Um, this is, I already mentioned the tie for the most Oscars won by a film. <laughs> Interestingly, it also uh, holds the record for the longest title of a movie to win an Oscar for Best Picture if you include the name of the trilogy, which is how it's titled, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, that is actually 36 characters. 
If you exclude the title of the trilogy, then the record is Around the World in 80 Days and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, both having 26 characters in their titles. So many, it's it's crazy what the Guinness Book of the World World Records has in it. Like, seriously, yeah, I, lots of things. I wonder if on that one, uh, there was better stuff to do with their time. <laughs> well, the trilogy did, as we've discussed, also holds the record for largest battle sequences on film. It also uh, holds the award for most Visual Effects Society awards won by a movie series. All right. Deserve it. I, I think they look they look great. All of them. None of them feel particularly dated or aged to me. How to do at the box office. Well, Jackson's final piece of his Middle Earth story uh, cost around $94 million, or just over $153 million in today's dollars. Continuing the third Friday in December release strategy, this opened December 17th, 2003, opposite Something's Gotta Give, Stuck on You, Love Don't Cost a Thing, Blizzard, and the limited release of Girl with a Pearl Earring. The movie opened in the number one spot, which, like the last one, it held for 10 straight weeks. It had another Oscar bump, pushing it back into the top 10 for two weeks, and it went on to earn $378.2 million domestically and $768.2 million internationally for a total gross of almost $1.9 billion in today's dollars. That gives the film an adjusted profit per finished minute of $8.5 million, earning back more than 12 times its budget and making it the most profitable of the three films. All told, Jackson proved his plan would work and set a high bar for everyone following him. Wow. Wow. Right? That's some bucks. Yeah, just a few. Jeez. Bu- just a few bucks. Times budget. Yeah. Well, uh, all right. I'm glad we did it. This is three films. We've, we've done it. We're done with it. There's no more. We're not doing The Hobbit. Yeah. We're done with The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> is that a threat? Hey, you never <laughs> I know. I just think you just threatened me. Just don't say never. <laughs> never say never. <laughs> <laughs> oh. No, I, I love, love, love this one. This is um, this is in my top five films, Pete. Top five. This one. Are there any of the other two in your top five films? Is your top five films these three films plus two more? No, this is the one. This is my favorite of the three. Okay, I think it's. I think it's my. It might be my favorite too. Although I do love the Fellowship. Two Towers is definitely the third favorite of the three. I, I feel like I'm the uh, backward one because I would go three, two, one. But that's just me. Okay. I would go two, three, three. No, I would go one, three, or three, one, two. So there's only two slots available for me, is all. <laughs> that is what it is. All right. We'll be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, Switching Gears. We're going to be talking about Yun Song Ho's 2016 zombie film, Train to Busan. Let's 
Letterboxd, Andy. You've heard of Letterboxd. It's our favorite social movie, social media network for movie lovers. Uh, you hang out, uh, out over at Letterboxd. You can do things like write your own reviews of your favorite movies. You can a- a keep a diary of movies that you uh, like and when you watch them so you can see what movies you've watched and when. Uh, and you can read all your friends' reviews of their movies and uh, share those reviews. It's it's just a great place. If you just love movies and want to share your love of movies, Letterboxd is the place to go. And uh, if you find you love it and you want to remove the ads and support the fantastic Kiwi team that brings Letterboxd to you, you can just head over to letterboxd.com and upgrade to a pro or patron membership and using the code NEXTREAL at checkout, We'll save you 20%. You can also, we've, we've built that into a little URL for you at thenextreel.com slash letterboxed. That will whisk you over to the checkout page with that 20% off. Already applied. Works for renewals as well. Andy, what are you going to do? Uh, you had a quibble. You actually used the word quibble. I wonder if that chipped away at your star rating for this movie. <laughs> it doesn't at all. I, you know, I, I love this film ridiculously even with my quibbles i still end up loving it so five stars in a heart i'd give it i'd give it six if i could i i love this film ridiculously he says (laughs) i also love it ridiculously five stars in a heart for me too why not i'm here there you go all right. Well, don't forget, visit thenextreel.com slash letterbox to get your patron or pro membership. It does work for renewals as well. And don't forget, we also have membership. You can learn more at thenextreel.com slash membership. We have early access to shows uh, that are ad-free. Plus, we have tons of bonus episodes. For April and May this year, we're uh, returning to the Infernal Affairs franchise. And then for June and July, we're looking at The Hustler and The Color of Money. So should be some fun conversations about those movies there. So what did you think about The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King? We would love to hear your thoughts. Uh, You just go over to our Discord community, hop into the Show Talk channel, and we'll be having conversation this week. We'd love to get your thoughts. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterbox giveth, Andy. As Letterbox always doeth. Mine's a little bit long. Long. Okay, mine is not. It's not that long. It's a par. It's a paragraph. Should we? Can I set you up and then you you do it? Sure. I'll do first. I'll go first. Then you go second. Okay. It's good. We that, figured it out. Be, Here we sure. go. This is a five star review from Lindsay. I gotta take a deep breath for this. The moment where Frodo is hanging off of a cliff, holding on with one hand and looks up at Sam and Sam reaches out for him to take his hand and Frodo doesn't want to at first, but Sam urges him. So he tries, but he can't get a grip because of how bloodied his hands are. So he looks down at the fire below and looks back up at Sam with such a tired sadness that it pierces my soul. And Sam can see from that expression that Frodo wants to just let go so badly that he wants the journey to end now, but he will not allow his friend to go like that in this place. So he cries out and pleads one more time for Frodo not to let go and take his hand and Frodo listens because it's Sam and he finds the strength and grabs Sam's hand and pulls up on the cliff into Sam's arms basically what I'm trying to say is that the Lord of the Rings is the best love story of all time (laughs) there are plenty of comments that uh, so many of them certainly reiterate that point for sure Uh, what do you got 
I'm going low. I went to a half star by Jordy Singer, who has this to say. This is the most horrible movie series. I absolutely hate how they treat my poor King Smeegs. They are so <laughs> hypocritical for how they treat Frodo versus how they treat my man Smeegs. I would probably rate a Smeegs redemption story five out of five because I love him. <laughs> That's awesome. We my man Smeegs. My man Smeegs. <laughs> oh, thanks, Letterboxd. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. Season 12 was all about catching up on big franchises, some of which were based on books that are on Audible. Series like Twilight, with Twilight, Eclipse, New Moon, and Breaking Dawn, all on Audible. Our Train Spotting series has both Train Spotting and Porno, Welsh's follow-up book that largely inspired T2 Train Spotting. We've got the three Lord of the Rings books. And our member bonus episodes, The Hustler and The Color of Money. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out. And you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. 